This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Every Monday, we bring you interviews with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. We talk about company culture, corporate leadership, emerging trends in technologies, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we've packaged up a very special holiday edition of the podcast with some never-before-heard innovation advice from the 2015 Cutting Room Floor. You'll be hearing from the likes of David J. Bland of Neo Innovate, David Burkus of Oral Roberts University, Scott Anthony of InnoSight, and Mitch Ditkoff of Idea Champions. We'll also wrap up the episode with a few bloopers for you from throughout the year so you can hear what life is like behind the mic and the mixing board when things aren't going so well. But I want to start off this episode with a clip from David J. Bland of Neo Innovate. David is one of the pioneers of the lean startup movement, and he works with household names like Toyota to help them build rapid prototypes of products to prove or disprove that there's a market for them. In a clip that didn't quite make the final cut of our episode, I asked David about what you do when you're testing out an idea and the results come back inconclusive. Give it a listen. Sure. And you you mentioned testing some in the last answer. What What do you recommend that companies do when they go to great lengths to test an idea out and the results come back and they're mixed or inconclusive? More, more testing? Well, I, I think when they're generally mixed or inconclusive, you know, it, this isn't like a spreadsheet, right, that you follow and then it leads you to a successful product. Mm-hmm. You still have to have vision, but it's testing that vision against reality. Usually when I see the tests come back mixed or inconclusive, the tests were not set up well. So, for example, if your customer segment's really, really broad, then of course you're going to get back inconclusive results. It's going to be a lot of noise. But if you know specific, like we have this really niche market and there's this painful specific problem we're trying to address, then those results shouldn't be inconclusive or mixed. People should love it or they should be indifferent. Um, you know, For example, if you follow sort of this Steve Blank, uh, Four Steps of the Epiphany model, you know, are people even aware they have the problem? Okay, check, they're aware. Have they uh, actually sought a solution to that problem? Check or not, right? Like if you've, if you've made it that far and your niche, a market segment or customer segment, hasn't even tried to, to solve the problem, then you have to take a step back and say, well, why haven't they even tried to solve it? Like is this a painful problem at all? Um, but if they have, then have they actually like actively sought, sought a solution? Did they go out in the market and try to find something and they just couldn't find it? And then finally they just built their own thing. Like there, there's kind of a level of progression there where if you do that well and you find those people that literally it was a painful enough problem they had to hack together something that they is completely unscalable and they can't sustain. And if you had something that solved that for them, they would love you. Then, then that's amazing. Like if you interviewed 20 people, you know, 18 of them should really want to use it right away. And I think what happens is that we don't take, we're not that disciplined and we say, oh, we'll just go after this broad customer segment and we'll do some surveys and we'll do some, you know, customer interviews 
And in the end, we get back like this, eh, I don't know. It's like half of them want it. Let's go build it anyway. And that's certainly not what I'm, you know, trying to convey here. It's be very narrow, very specific. Is there a strong signal or not? And use that to inform, you know, your next result. So in, in the end, I feel like the generally like mixed or inconclusive results come from going way too broad, poor experiment design, and just not being specific enough. Um, so, um, uh, you know, my advice wouldn't just be do more testing, but it's more very like learn from that, uh, learn from that experiment what you could do differently next time. It's kind of like training your intuition to get better at experimentation. And therefore, you'll be able to use that, you know, like with your vision to make more informed product decisions. So in addition to being a professor at Oral Roberts University, David Burkus is also an author and he hosts his very own podcast called Leader Lab. You should definitely check that out if you like what we do here at the Innovation Engine. We've had some of the same guests on our podcasts, but David is one of those guys that just has a voice for radio. When he talked, it was like liquid velvet was pouring into my ears through the headphones. And David told a great story about why the human brain is hardwired to understand things through the lens of story. Here it is. One of the problems with myths is that everyone loves a good story as a way of making sense of the world around us. So can you tell us the story of how an apple allegedly falling on Isaac Newton's head explains what you label the Eureka myth? Well, I mean, I, I can tell you the story of how an apple discovered gravity, right? So, and, and more on that in a second. Um, I mean, we really do. We love these sort of stories. So we love um, Archimedes in the bathtub. I think, I think Archimedes in the bathtub is actually a really funny example because it, 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 in modern day, you see the same version of the story, right? Because if I tell you, well, where do you get your best ideas? Where do you get your best ideas? I think it's not uncommon for people to say in the shower. Right. It's the only time it's safe to talk about bathing at work, right? <laughs> because we've got, we've got some thousand-year-old story of somebody taking a bath and getting a great idea. And so no, there's no other situation in which it's okay to tell someone you were in the shower. But in that case, you can. Um, but you also have this Newton and the apple story. And, and the, what I think is interesting about this one, I mean, we all know the story, right? Isaac Newton is sitting under the apple tree and the apple falls, hits him on the head. Right. And he discovers gravity, although he didn't actually discover it. We knew about it for thousands of years. If you want to be more sort of literal, he discovers a mathematical formula to explain how gravity affects the movement of planetary bodies. Right. But even if you want to be really literal, you have to admit that the story actually never happened. We can't find very much evidence of it. Um, we can find retellings of it. And actually, if you look throughout history, you can see the story getting kind of funnier and funnier each time. The original story was written down by an apprentice of Newton's who just talked about how they were uh, having tea in a garden after dinner and Newton pointed to an apple that had fallen on the ground and said, uh, I'm working on a theory. I think that the force that compels that apple to fall to the ground is the same thing that, it, that affects larger planetary bodies in the heavens, right? And that's, that's the end of the story. But that's a really boring story. Right. So we sort of morphed it over time, over hundreds of years. And and we turned it into this one where, you know, the the really the moral of the story, right, is if you need a great idea, sit under an apple tree and wait to get pegged in the head by a piece of fruit. Right. And the problem that I have with that is that the protagonist of the story, the main character, the only one doing any work in in the story that we love to tell is the apple. Right. The apple is the actually the hero of the story. If the apple hadn't moved, then nothing would have happened. Right. 
And I think, I mean, it's a, it's a fun story, but I think it's a terrible one to share with people because it sends that message that it, this is something that happens to you. And if it didn't, if it doesn't happen to you or it hasn't happened to you, if you don't feel inspired, you can't see it, but I'm doing air quotes. If you don't feel inspired, then you're off the hook. Uh, no biggie. Just keep, you know, waiting for a piece of fruit to peg you in the head. But at the same time, that, that sort of aha moment resonates with us. There is kind of this thing that happens sometimes when we step back from work and we do what psychologists call incubate on it. We step, step back from the problem and allow sort of our subconscious to work where sometimes things can sort of snap together and, and we can have what feels like an aha, you know, eureka, bathtub, apple and Newton moment. Um, in reality, though, those moments never happen unless we were already thinking about the problem and then step back from it. They always follow this incubation period. And that's the real lesson, right? That it's totally okay to take a break from work, but there's a lot of preparation that goes on before that. You can't just take a break and wait for something to happen. This next clip is with Scott Anthony of InnoSight. Scott is well known in the innovation space for being the managing director of InnoSight, and he's also a well known writer. He's the author of a book called The First Mile, a launch manual for getting great ideas into the market, among others. We did a great episode on building your very own innovation engine, fittingly enough, and over the course of it, he shared a story about Manila Water and how it's a good example of an organization that has employed the minimum viable innovation system to great effect. Give it a listen. Okay, nice. And there's another, there's a great anecdote in the article on the Manila Water Partnership in the Philippines. Can you talk a little bit about that and explain why it's an illustration of the success of the minimum viable innovation system? Absolutely. The, the only problem I'll have is talking a little bit about it because I really, <laughs> love, I really love the story. So uh, Manila Water is probably one of my, my favorite consulting projects of all time. Uh, we got a call from them about two years ago now, back in 2013. They had a really interesting problem. The company was formed in 1997 to address a real crisis situ situation in Metro Manila where only about one in four households had reliable access to potable water, drinkable water. So over the course of the 16 years after the company was formed, Manila Water took over the provision of water in the eastern part of Manila. They had basically the same people that were running a government bureaucracy before and not running it particularly well. They injected a bit of talent and really good management disciplines, and they transformed the market. By 2013, 99% of households had 24-hour access to water. Unbelievable story. The challenge that they called us with is, what do we do next? They had promised their shareholders, publicly traded company, that they were going to continue to grow. You can't go from 25% to 99% to 390%. The math simply doesn't work. So they knew they had to go and push the new and different. So they demonstrate the minimum viable system in action. The first part is figuring out how much of their growth target were they going to have to close with innovation efforts they were not working on. It turned out roughly a third of their growth target was going to have to come from doing new things. They picked a few problems worth solving. Here's a good example of that. The water that runs up to the meter that goes into your home in Metro Manila or to an office building, that's really good international quality water. When you turn on your tap, sometimes it can be dirty, cloudy, or not taste very good because the pipes in the house or building are decrepit and aren't very good. So a bunch of people in Metro Manila will go to what's known as water refilling stations where somebody has found a good tap connection put it in a big plastic bottle, run it through an ionizer that does nothing to the water, 
and sold it back to somebody at a 500 to 1,000 percent price increase. Well, Manila Water said, we can obviously do this. It's a tough business model, actually. There's a lot of work to make it work, but they can introduce a better proposition at lower prices under a great brand that they called Healthy Family. This doesn't happen without anyone working on it. So the third part of it was picking three of their very best people and saying, you're going to spend the next couple years of your life going and working on these types of ideas. And then finally, they created a small group called the New Services Review Committee, a few of their top senior leaders who meet once a month, not to be dictatorial and make decisions about the projects, but really to work with people working on ideas like Healthy Family to manage all of the assumptions and uncertainties behind it. Manila Water did all of this in about a 90-day period, set the initial conditions up, and you fast forward about 18 months after the system was set up, they've got two viable businesses that are now beginning to enter the marketplace that they believe have real growth potential. So again, everybody can do this type of stuff. Mitch Ditkoff is a writer and innovation consultant who has graced us with his presence on the podcast twice now. For the final episode that we released, we ended up using a different story than the one that he told when we did the original recording. So the one that we didn't use is about the power of taking the road less traveled. Give that a listen. Okay, and and do you have one or two favorite stories from the first part of the book, Mitch, that you might want to share with listeners? Uh, absolutely. I actually have 38 favorite stories. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's the pick, ones that made pick, the pick one. Well, um, yes, I do, and I'll be happy to share one or two of them, time allowing. Sure. And just a, a brief preview. Uh, a lot of the stories in the front part of the book are from my work with organizations, you know, since 1987, big companies that bring me in to help them succeed in the area of being a more innovative culture. And there are stories that precede that time, going all the way back to when I was a young man, you know, as a 20-year-old or a 22-year-old or a 25-year-old. So all uh, united or joined together from the world of work. So this one story, which is called The Poetry of Life, is from the time I was 22, when I was a graduate student at Brown University, not in organizational development, not in industrial psychology, but in poetry. I was a poetry graduate student. And one day, I went to a quote-unquote hip student faculty party, uh, in which uh, I'd say everybody in that room is in some kind of altered state either slightly uh, uh, drunk or slightly stoned, or both. And in that uh, state uh, that that brings out extra courage and loosens the lips, I decided I was going to go to each of my four advisors, my professors, and ask them the same question. Where, sir, if you could be anywhere on planet Earth at this moment in time, would you like to be? And to cut to the chase, all four of them, had a different place other than that room that we were standing in. They did not really want to be professors at an Ivy League university. They wanted to be someplace else. And I had an epiphany at that moment that here I am studying to be just like them, to be given the keys to the kingdom and be a tenured professor so that 20 years into the future, some bearded, wise-ass graduate student is going to ask me where I want to be, and I'm going to tell them somewhere else. Duh, why don't I get out now while I still can? 
So the next day, uh, I decided to uh, to leave, to quit. And I went to class that day. My professor at the beginning of the class called my name and said, Mr. Ditkoff, with great gravitas in his voice, so I'd like to speak with you after class. And I went, oh, crap, I'm about to get kicked out of school. I haven't been doing the work. How am I going to explain this to my parents? I meet with him after class, and he looks at me, and he says, well, we've been reviewing your work, and we've decided to give you a full teaching scholarship. And I said, well, that's fascinating. I quit, which uh, shocked him and disturbed him. And he invited me to his office uh, later that day to try to talk me out of it, realized that I had come to a crossroads in my life and that he needed to back off and let me do what I really wanted to do, which was to leave the academic world and live a real life uh, in, in the world, not just to read about life, not just to study about life, not just to write about life in that kind of intellectual, cerebral way, but to get dirty, to roll up my sleeves and be in the marketplace which led to the next chapter of my life, which was extraordinary and a great inspiration and led to a lot of interesting writing. Why I wrote that story, Will, in the book and why that's included is I am inviting readers to consider uh, a crossroads in their life, a moment of truth in their life where they have to choose. They may be drifting along a certain path. They may be involved in a certain study or a certain uh, chapter of their life which is not fully engaging to them. They've drifted in and they have to choose and be courageous enough to choose out. And so the story is really a, a catalyst to get people to reflect on what changes they need to make in their life, what choice is in front of them that may not be popular, it might be difficult, but for their own sanity and for their own well-being they need to choose a different path. So that's the poetry of life story from the book. One thing a lot of people have asked me about over the course of doing the podcast is, do things ever go wrong? The answer, absolutely. Now I want to play just a few clips that show you what it's like when things aren't going so well at the helm of the Innovation Engine podcast. So one of the guests that I was really excited to have on this year is named Nir Eyal. He's an author and entrepreneur who published a book this year called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Just last week, he was named one of LinkedIn's top technology writers of the year. So you can imagine my horror when I couldn't get a good connection with Nir Eyal. Give it a listen. There's a, there's a, there's a clear black line between what's a habit could be a bad habit, Near they, uh, can, can give you, yeah. Sorry, we had just a little bit of a cut out there. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me okay now? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Okay. I hope I hope this won't be too much of an editing nightmare. Yeah, no, it, it'll be fine. I'm sure. The technology gods behaved long enough for Near to get one solid answer in. Then it was his turn to not be able to hear me. Products out there. The best product doesn't always win. Many times, it's just the product that forms the stickier habit. Got it. So, so if you are a Microsoft and you're a Bing and you're trying to create like a a you're still there? Yeah. Sorry. Can you hear me? Near. Hello. Hey, Near. Near. Hello. Hey, Near. I'm still here.
Oh, you have reached near AL. I'm sorry, I can't take your call. We've reached near AL. I'm sorry, I can't take your call. Eventually, near AL could take my call, and we had a great conversation about how to build habit-forming products. Check out that episode if you haven't already. With former Pixar exec and Walt Disney Studios CTO Greg Brando, he was finishing up telling a story about his interview with Steve Jobs when we had connection issues. We were having a discussion, and we had a great discussion, honestly. But and then the funny thing was, um, after the interview, you, you know, he got up and laughed. And I'm wondering, okay, now what do I do? He says, "Well, I'll call." Sorry, I'll call, sorry, Greg. I'll call it. Greg, let me stop you. We're we're getting a little. I'm get. It's getting a little choppy there. Let me. Uh, can I try hanging up and calling you right back? Yeah, sure. Okay, thanks. Goodbye. Hey. If you haven't listened to that episode with Greg Brando, I highly recommend it. He's been one of my favorite guests to have come on the podcast of all time. It's called Keys to Leading Innovative Companies. Now, in this next clip with Mitch Ditkoff, we had connection issues of another kind, static, and it was relentless. What do they need to be more patient about, not less patient about? What, if anything, that's in their control, that they can move by their actions, might they quicken? This is not to say you should wait 12,000 years for something to happen. Uh, or sorry, Mitch. Mitch, I don't know if you're hearing this, but I'm getting terrible static. Do you hear yeah, that? Yeah, I do. Okay. I do. Um, yeah. Uh, that's on my end or your end, do you think? Uh, I, I've never heard it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. Um, All right. Has that been going on the entire time? No, it hasn't. Uh, I mean, it kind of it, it came in a little bit as you were talking about the the uh, Hopi Indians, I think it was, but it was you know, not so bad that it was um, as disruptive as it was there at the at the end of the of the of your answer. Um, let's see. I I, th- I think that uh, I certainly think that, like the the beginning part of the Joe Belinsky story will be will be usable. Maybe could 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 you start back with like you know tying the Joe Belinsky story back to uh, how we think of time? Sure, sure. Okay, like my commentary on the story. Yeah. Okay, sure. They just start started off whenever. Yep. So the question one might ask is, why have I included this story in the book? Well, I included the story in the book because it illustrates a principle, as all the stories in storytelling at work are illustrative of some human quality. In this case, our relationship to time, especially people in business or people at work and their relationship to time. Most of us, I've noticed, especially in the 21st century, uh, have a very hyperactive, almost ADD concept of time. We need things done quickly. We're thinking next week, next quarter. We're rarely thinking long term. And because we are so addicted to this short window of time and 
so addicted to things happening quickly, sometimes we lose something along the way. In my experience with the uh, Joe Belinsky factor, my encounter with him, something taking seven years to manifest, really shifted my relationship to time. And it taught me to slow down, to look at the big arc, and be a bit more patient. Not to say that everything I do needs to uh, be uh, that static again, by the way. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> Should, there's, should a, I, there's a should time we, and a place for everything, including static. <laughs> <laughs> there is. I'm sure there's been static in the Hopi Indian prophecy. <laughs> okay, it's. I, I guess it's gone. If you can keep, pick that train of thought back up, I can edit it together. Okay, where, where should I pick it up? <laughs> Gosh, I don't even remember now. I'm kind of rattled. <laughs> And also, it's likely to occur again. I'm guessing since it's been two or three times in a row. I know. Um, you know, you let's. Why don't we break this connection, and I'll call you back. So, if I have learned one thing as the host of the Innovation Engine podcast, it's that when you run into technical issues, hang up and call them back. Now, this next clip is very near and dear to my heart. It's from the 50th episode of the podcast when I had Three Pillar CEO David DeWolf on. I didn't end up using the clip in the episode at the time because it felt a little bit hokey and self-serving. And I'll be honest with you, it still does. But I think it will serve as a nice bow on what has been a great year of podcast episodes in 2015 and almost two years worth of podcast episodes since we first launched in February of 2014. To get there, yeah, <sighs> fascinating. Okay, so, so David, I've got, I've got one thing for you. Uh oh. Okay. Uh, well, m- hopefully two things. But the first thing, since we're on the the anniversary episode, okay, uh, the Innovation Engine had its first birthday three days ago. Wow. On February third, that was the the date that we published our first episode. And just to bring it all full circle, yep. I want to read back today's February sixth. Yep. It's, it's the anniversary, the one-year and three-month anniversary of when I first heard about this podcasting endeavor. Okay. Email from David DeWolf to myself and Tony Orlando, who is uh, our, our head of market and client services here at Three Pillar. Wednesday, November 6, 2013 at 4.54 p.m. <laughs> Uh-oh. I'm nervous. Will, I have just signed you and I up for a course called Podcasting A to Z. (laughs) A new initiative that I'd like to work with you on is creating thought leadership for us through the podcasting medium. This ultimately needs to be integrated into our overall messaging and marketing, but we're going to take immediate action and start pulling it together. There are 480 million blogs and digital magazines in the world. There are only 250,000 podcasts. Blogs require screen time. Podcasts do not. You can listen in your car, while mowing the lawn, or while exercising. Yep. Interestingly, though, there are almost as many listeners as there are dedicated blog readers. It's easier to be found, and it creates more authority. We plan to leverage this in multiple ways to benefit our growth. We plan to do one podcast per week, probably 20 minutes to 40 minutes in length. We need to define... 
I was able to meet the foremost expert on podcasting while in Dallas, and he's the one that teaches the course. We plan to build you an audio-video studio in the orange or blue room. We're in the orange room right now. We are. We did that. All right. So that we can leverage all of that talent you have in creating multimedia. Hmm. I hope you're as excited about this opportunity as I am. I think it will be a lot of fun and give us both an opportunity to learn something new. Let's chat on Friday when I get back. In the meantime, I will begin putting together a production roadmap. Best, David. Wow. Yeah. We've come a long way. We've come a long way. <laughs> you nailed it. I mean, you you have done it, taken a run. And I think I'll tell you what has really inspired me is you mentioned it a little bit before, the guests you've been able to get, the experts on innovation have blown me away. And I have heard over and over again from people who have listened and like, that's really good stuff. And and it is. And I think it's powerful. I'd, I've probably listened to about three-fifths, so probably 30 of the 50 episodes. Um, yeah. But I do. On the plane, in the car, when I'm mowing the lawn, it's those types of things. Yeah. Um, and uh, I find them insightful. So it, it's it's fascinating to me. Well, I hope that all our listeners out there have found the podcast to be insightful as well. As David mentioned, the guests are really what make it tick. So special thanks to everyone who has come on over the course of the year. With this episode, we're going to call it a wrap on fresh episodes of the podcast for 2015. I'd be remiss if I didn't also send out a few thanks to people without whom the podcast would not be possible. Julia Slattery has been a godsend on the podcast editing and guest finding front. Clint Harrigan and Sunil Param were also instrumental in editing podcast episodes over the course of this year. Special thanks to the three of them and, of course, everyone who came on the podcast in 2015 and all of you who listened. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you in 2016. The Innovation Engine is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. To subscribe to receive new episodes of the podcast directly in your inbox, you can go to www.3pillarglobal.com podcast. You can also download the Innovation Engine's very own iOS app from the iTunes App Store, And you can subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and SoundCloud. If you liked this week's episode, please give it, and us, a thumbs up in your podcast player of choice. You can also share episodes of the podcast using the hashtag InnovationEngine. And if it's on Twitter, be sure to mention at 3PillarGlobal. 